right. Well, everybody. I hope that we are being seen and heard loud and clear. I, I see good connections over here on my end with DLive and with, quite frankly, TV, powered by Foxhole, Pilled.net. Happy to be here. It's a Friday evening. It's 8.51, and I am joined by my buddy, Timothy Gordon. Tim, how you feeling? I'm great. How are you, friend? I'm doing great. And you know, you want to know something? This this book is getting more and more enjoyable as the uh, the, the pages go on. I'll tell you. Yeah, he builds it. He he's he's setting the, the 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 table here, and now is beginning to serve the food. It's really good. Oh, so then let's start with this because we we asked a lot of questions in session two that we immediately started getting question uh, answers for in the next couple of chapters, especially a little bit more of a character background and a little bit more of an, an analysis, being able to observe as the omniscient reader who Paul Gladstone is. We know a lot about Christian Gladstone. We know he's pretty based. We know uh, he, from what we we can tell. He doesn't seem like he is somebody who is willing to compromise anything. But we didn't know anything about his brother Paul, who was the, the globalist's uh, pet project, it seems. But we get a lot about the Gladstones in the opening here. Um, we on, In Chapter 20 especially, we get a lot about Ceci, her parents, how Declan Gladstone's uh, you know, ultimate demise, his death, could actually at least be in part contributed to the despair that was brought on by Second Vatican Council. This is how, this is how um, involved and dedicated this family was, and to see the church get ripped apart by uh, an obvious ploy like this actually caused physical health problems for Declan Gladstone. And we get a lot of the backstory of the lengths to which the family went to preserve windswept house as a bastion for tradition in a world that was obviously under attack from all angles. And I think, Tim, I'll let you go after after this, I think that that is what is the most becoming most interesting to me at this point. Obviously, there's a lot more to go, but I always knew that the book Windswept House, it was a Vatican political thriller of sorts. Uh, it largely based in fact, we know, and it's increasingly easy to see that we are living in a time of revelation to that point. You know, it, it's incredible to read here what is actually being put into play at, at, at advanced levels. But the title always invoked feelings of dread about this windswept house in me, not knowing anything about the book and knowing, not knowing what we know about this windswept house, it, it almost seemed like it was a haunted epicenter. Haunted yeah. yeah, yeah. Like yeah. Th this was going to be the epicenter of a great evil. And now that we're getting closer to the middle of the book, it's apparent that this is quite literally a holy fortress. Um, so what, what do you think about that so far? Uh, I had the exact same impression, Frank. I always thought, I've always heard of this book, thinking that windswept house was some sort of haunted house, Illusion, A-L-L, not I-L-L, -L, uh, to Vatican City. Instead, it's the fortress against the infiltration of Vatican City. And let me just say, there's authorial information here that's important to the extent that this novel is faction, fact fiction. As a Catholic, for the Catholics reading it or the people that are interested in the recent history of the church, the infiltration into the church after Vatican II, it's very, very interesting that as Malachi Martin, our author, 
came into the fullness of the faith and stopped just being a Jesuit, he endorses the trad or even even the rad trad view of the betrayals of the council, particularly the liturgical betrayals of the council, what happened to the mass. And um, he endorses the idea, some very specific ideas about the third secret of Fatima and its uh, release to the public. Namely, when you, whenever you get into it with, with normies on, I know there's a lot of action to cover today, but I just want to say this is my, my main word for the, the people that are interested in the history of the church. The normies will always push back on people like me inside the church that are like, what, what the hell happened, man? You know, the third secret of Fatima was mandated by heaven as communicated by Our Lady to uh, be released in the year 1960. And good Pope John, who was a skeptic and didn't like any of the three Fatima seers, disobeyed heaven by not doing it. And the normies will always say, Jimmy Aiken of Catholic Answers, a good dude, will always say this. No, it was no earlier than 1960, not no later. Well, this guy who read The Secret, who was a Vatican insider, who was the personal secretary to uh, Augustine Cardinal Bea, he says otherwise. He endorses all the rad trad talking points here, and to me, that's very telling and very vindicating. So, well, you know, yeah. oh, you know what? If you can just scoot that microphone a little bit closer to you, because you just yep. you just cut through in a, with a clarity that we wouldn't didn't have the first five minutes. That that sounded great. Um, yep. But on that, when you say uh, you're talking about the, the the Fatima aspect of it. It's, it's been brought up a couple of times, so you know that it's, it's going to present itself as a major part of the plot somewhere down the, ro- the road here. And I, where one of the places that we leave off in this, in the, this segment of book that we were reading is it, it's a, a later chapter where you have all these council members of the EU that are completely pissed off that the American, Paul Gladstone, has been nominated and seems to be the only nominee for their secretary general post in Europe. They did not know why the American is there, and they were, they were throwing shade at that um, at Appleyard, the naval intelligence officer from the, U, from the U.S. That, uh, that was there because they knew, oh, well, you got your boy in there. Obviously, you're infiltrating us. And he actually didn't know that much about Paul Gladstone himself. He wanted to learn more. And he was there in time to listen to these conflicting letters, which is a very interesting part. We have to get to it in chronological order, though. Those conflicting letters, one that came from Mastroianni, and one that came from the Slavic Pope himself to the EU Council there when they were talking about Paul Gladstone. And that's when people at the Council, even though they were no fans of the papacy, they didn't under... Obviously, they're not in the upper echelons of the process because they were all a little bit um, surprised at how much of a disconnect there seemed to be between Mastroianni and the Slavic Pope, that there was a disunity there that they were curious about. And Appleyard in particular was curious about what the Pope knew as far as intelligence goes because he had these thoughts about poor, poor Europe. And in the Pope's letter to the European Council, he lamented poor, poor Europe. And that that piqued Appleyard's intrigue about what the Pope may know. I'm wondering if some of that intelligence that Appleyard is, uh, is curious about will lead back to the third secret. I thought the same thing. I thought the exact same thing. Yeah, that's that's a good, a good notion. I think he's going to become a, 
Maybe not a bigger character in terms of personification, Appleyard, but I, I think he's got more of a role. It's interesting with a book like this, it's like reading War and Peace, you know, 500 characters. You don't know who's going to be enlarged upon later from the first 200 pages. And we're, we're getting a better sense of it now uh, after page 200. You're like, these are going to be our bread and butter characters. I think Appleyard will be recurrent. Yeah. Well, well, then I yeah. guess I guess going back to the beginning when we were talking about Windswept House, one thing that we know about that fortress, that holy fortress, is that it's going to be left with no one but Ceci uh, to guard it, because not only is Christian actually going to answer the call and jump into the belly of the beast in Rome, but Father Goodmacher is going too, which I, that was really, and I said, what? They're both going to get... So that's going to yeah. be interesting to see this this united front of Christian... Guttmacher, um, the, uh, the the Irish Pope, the Slattery, Slattery, yeah. and of course uh, the the Irish uh, the the Irish priest, and then you have the Pope himself. I wonder what's going to become of this little unified front, this little boulder of resistance that is now forming inside of Rome, even though uh, they. Uh, Mestriani thinks that he's going to have easy work to be made of Christian, which I don't know. I think he's going to become some kind of a double agent for the papacy. That's going to be pretty interesting there. Yeah, really, really, uh, I have the exact same notions also. Really remind, beginning to resemble more and more in terms of the double agentry, which seems to be insinuated of uh, Christian Gladstone, really a lot like the book that that we were talking about at the end of last week's session uh father elijah where there's an actual double agent on behalf of the it's good genius. pope. the good pope is john paul ii it's 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 a lot very similar indeed indeed it is and uh i i think that just that's just what's jumping off the page right now um let's see here uh slattery is the is the irish priest jerry coogan says yes damian slattery I think Paul is questioning his decision, says Mickey in the chat room. Uh, let's see here. Discussion. Uh, hold on. What else we have? A few other things. Anyone else scour the Google Maps for the Gladstone Mansion? Well, the thing about, John, uh, the gla thing about the Gladstone Mansion is that that's in Galveston, Texas. But from what I have gathered, I mean, you have O'Leary that is supposedly in Louisiana, but we learn that that's John O'Connor. And he was the cardinal over here at the, our archdiocese in yeah. New York. So I'm, I'm wondering, is Windswept House not a actual Texas location in Galveston? It, where, where was the original Windswept House? I wish he were alive, or maybe there's some place out there that he, he wrote about it. But moving on, I, I just want to, to get around to some of other, other things here. Can it, I say something fast? Right? Yeah, please, go Real ahead. Fast. Well, I just checked this an hour ago. I, I, I saved my reading um, most of the week until a couple hours before. And right. I checked this. Galveston is not in the Archdiocese of New Orleans. New Orleans is where I catechize my kids. It's only an hour and a half from west of me. Galveston's in its own Archdiocese, so it's curious that Martin made Galveston in the Archdiocese of New Orleans. I, I th There's some reason he's doing that, and it's because he wanted him to be tied to John Jay Oh, Clary or whatever, but yeah, that, I, I just I thought well, that was strange. Well, then perhaps that that just also goes to support the the idea that that at very at very least, windswept house the location, um, is is a fiction. 
Yeah. So, or, or at least something, a little piece of information, data about this that has been altered in some way, and perhaps it existed in another location. Who knows? But uh, I've hung out at Galveston. There's no big, there's no big uh, Wrigley. There's the Wrigley Mansion. If you go to Catalina Island, you know, off of the coast of Long Beach in California, they, you know, if they called it the Quigley Ma- Mansion or something, we'd know what the hell they were talking about. But there, there is no big fortress-style mansion on Galveston Island in Texas. Right. So right. I think it's fictitious. Okay, so hey, who knows? Maybe we can do some digging and find out on that, and perhaps there's actually even more that we could um, we could we can dig up along the way and, and get some clues. But on on page 194, we start getting to learn about the second Gladstone brother, Paul, who was being nominated for this EU EC Secretary General position by the globalists, and it's in page 195. Well, here's the first thing: you have this. Um, Guttmacher, Guttmacher is talking to Sessi, and says, to Sessi's surprise, Guttmacher had suggested that even that uh, she had more reason to worry about Paul than over Christian. More reason to worry about Paul than over Christian. And he, he probably knew. And, and here's the thing about Paul. On 195, you start seeing that he was actually, he went to the seminary. And he was yeah. going to become a priest. And, and they started listing. He started listing all the things that turned off Paul. He entered the minor seminary in, the, in uh, New Orleans Diocese, 1972. Within his first semester, he and his fellow seminarians were told officially to doff their clerical cassocks and to wear ordinary street clothes. In their studies, they no longer had to master Latin. They found open invitations from the majority of the professors to think as they judged best about original sacrosanct doctrines and fundamental teachings, about the existence of God, about the divinity of Jesus, about the real presence of Christ in the Blessed Sacrament, about the authority of the Pope, about the full gamut of Roman Catholic beliefs and laws. Beyond the classroom, meanwhile, seminarians were encouraged to enlarge their experience by dating women. At the same time, many found it easy to establish homosexual bonds among themselves, for they were told that a positive attitude toward homosexuality would make them pastorally sensitive. In the transformation of the old church in the House of Ecumenical Winds, Paul saw every, fam- every familiar thing in the seminary swept into oblivion. Seminarians were no longer required to turn up for morning prayers or for daily mass. But those like Paul who chose to do so found that even in the seminary chapel, a common table had replaced the altar. Statues, stations of the cross, pews, mosaics, even the tabernacle, communion rails, and crucifixes were nowhere to be seen. Confessionals that hadn't been scraped, uh, scrapped were less likely to contain a priest than the janitor's cleaning supplies. The sins of society and of mankind were deplored continually, of course, but personal sin was never mentioned. And he goes on for even a couple of more paragraphs about that, but I'll tell you, Tim, this is where, um, and it says the clearest idea on Paul's horizon was one of, was one of a one world and an international convergence of nations into one superstate. But even though he's been groomed for um, for all of this kind of EU banking, big businessman stuff for the globalist stage, this is where I realize that Paul Gladstone does not actually, in my opinion thus far, represent evil, the evil of the two brothers. He actually represents the everyman who is blown off course by the hypocrisy and the corruption of the new order, 
um, something that has led so many people to lose faith altogether, to lose interest in God himself, not just a human organization of the church screwing up. They actually extrapolate that out to distrusting the entire idea of the divine. So we see that he, he's a career-oriented man who has adopted globalist political views, but I don't see him, I don't see evil in him, which I think will make for an interesting interactions between he and his brother Christian later in the book when they're both supposed to be carrying water for the cabal. Agreed. Yeah, neither neither is going to be, I, I don't think any the, either of the two brothers are going to be evil. It's certainly not in a simplistic, linear, wooden way. Paul, you know, we, you and I have been speculating about, you know, how direct the antipathy and the conflict between the brothers will be. It looks like it will be subtle, wrought with subtlety. I, I mean, the fact that we know a little bit more about Sassy, uh, we know a bit more about her father, the maternal grandfather uh, of strong, traditional-based Latin faith. And then we know Christian's um, such a good priest. It makes it more interesting that Paul, at his time in the seminary, is turned off by the Cranmer tables. You know, what, what um, folks might not understand is that when, when we complain of tables instead of an altar, what, what there was for almost 2,000 years in a Roman Catholic church, which was built cruciform like that, you know, mm. now they start built, being built in this, uh, you know, gay in the round way. Uh, they're no longer cruciform. At the head of them was an altar. The altar could not be passed behind. The altar was pushed against the wall for, for nearly 2,000 years. After Vatican II, they got these Cranmer tables they borrowed from um, certain sects of Protestantism. They pushed them so that you could walk in front of them or behind them. So they're, they're tables now. Um, they're fucking throwing out tens of thousands i have talked to priests and i've talked to matt frad who's talked to priests tens of thousands of dollars of the most ornate beautiful uh altar adornment they're just throwing it out for these awful looking uh slam dunk jesus 70s churches that you see littering the streets in the suburbs uh, particularly in the american west and 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 paul gladstone is turned off by this so he sounds like a gladstone yeah, he sounds like his mom or his brother or his grandpa, which is o- a good only, sign. Only, yeah. and, and, and as, as you say, it sounds exactly like them. You can see that there's, he just, he's like, what's the, what, what am I doing here? What's the point? But unlike Sessi and his brother, it broke his faith. He lost his faith. Right. Uh, the, 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 um, the, the, the medallions and the trinkets the, and, and the reminders that he takes along with him, they are uh, perhaps sentimental on a personal level, but you can tell that it's not really... He's passed along a version of Catholicism to his son that is probably just like what most people get these days, too. I really believe that as we're reading more about him, he is obviously uh, making more than the ever, every man. But as far as his spiritual journey goes and his, um, his moral makeup, he, he really reflects the average, the average American. Uh, they, they may have global views that they don't know why they have them but it's been it's been ingrained in them uh they they we've been taught in for several generations now over here to to think as a one world instead of thinking as your community and thinking as a, a representative of your community in a larger american republic so it's just can you blame them can you blame them uh at some point, at some point, you got to take responsibility. But who knows? Maybe that maybe that reflection point is coming in later chapters. 
Yeah, I mean, how old are the brothers? I'm forgetting how old the brothers. Christian uh, is the older Christian's one. Christian's the eldest. Paul's middle, and then uh, Trisha's the youngest, right? And they're born in middle 50s or something, and this is middle 90s, so they're a pro they're all late middle 30s. Yeah. Is that it? About that. Yeah, I mean, this was me through my teens and 20s, you know, just all the, this same stuff caused me to all but lose my faith till my late 20s. So, I, I mean, you know, I, I can't blame them. Uh, you, you, you know, at some point you got to get it back. But, yeah. Um, yeah. No. Anyway, I, I, he's he's an interesting character. Definitely not wooden, not unidimensional. I, I don't think he's going to turn out that way at all. Well, then we have then we have. Uh, well, I have. We'll see what you guys have, and we'll go into the thread in just a couple of minutes. Page two twenty three, two twenty four. This is where the delegates of the EU are together with the American spook Apple Yard in attendance. Everyone is upset that an American is being nominated as a secretary general. Eventually they fall in line, they all approve him unanimously. But uh, something very interesting happens with this reading of competing letters from the Pope and Mastriani. And I don't know if I have the actual text from the Pope here. Let's see, um, Featherstone Ho, his brows began to bob up and down, but he's, uh, he went manfully on. Holy Father says that his heart, quote, bleeds for poor, poor Europe being progressively alienated from its heritage and appointed destiny while its noble tradition is being trans, uh, transmogrified. He warns us and the new Secretary General and the Council Ministers and the Commissioners of the rampant dangers of materialism and hedonism, and then he winds up his letter this way. Europe must seek a future of unity for the benefit of the entire human family of man by returning to its Christian roots. And, of course, Fanny was already hold, folding the papal document again with joy and willingly the Holy Father imparts his apostolic blessing, etc., etc., and so on. There was a momentary silence. The selectors broke. Um, and Appleyard took note of Ali's uh, objection and all that stuff. But here you go. Here is Masseriani. They said the Council of Ministers and the, co uh, the Commissioners of the Greater European Union must be in a position to enable its member states to enter a large, uh, large trails of history. The large trails of history not only in Europe but also in all continents of the globe. Therefore, having duly examined the credentials and assessed the promise of the new candidate for the post of Secretary General to the Commissioners, credentials and documents, blah, 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 blah. Holy See, Paul Thomas Gladstone, Holy See wholeheartedly recommends his candidacy. And the silence that um, they got there where they saw the difference between the two of them, that was, the, uh, that was the, the, the tipping point that leads to this last comment from Apple Yard at the end. He said the following about Apple Yard. Let's see. Gibb, Apple Yard, remembered his history. And because he did, those three words, poor, poor Europe, still played in his mind like a puzzle to which he had no answer. Or perhaps more like a dirge being piped from an unexpected quarter. Uh, as the mystic Rosicrucian he was in his heart, Gibb Appleyard had no love for the imperial pres uh, pa papacy and certainly did not want to see its return. But as a dispassionate executive officer for the president of the Committee of Ten, he did want answers to the questions those words had raised concerning the mind of the Slavic Pope. Nor was it the matter of mere curiosity. The Holy See had access to intelligence that any nation would give a third of its treasury to possess. And whether his house was divided or not, 
His, this pope had shown himself well able to use his intelligence in geopolitical gambits of the highest order. Those facts alone, those facts and Thomas Jefferson's famous warning that anyone who dreams of being ignorant and free dreams of something that never was and never will be, meant that it would be a long time before Appleyard could cease wondering about what intelligence might lie behind the Pope's dirge-like lament for poor, poor Europe. And that's why we were saying before, I, I have a feeling the intelligence is what's inside of the third secret. Yeah, the uh, look, poor, poor Europe sounds to me like the, the, the heart of what I've always taken to be the, the third secret of Fatima, which is the utter, utter betrayal uh, geopolitically uh, of Europe by the church, meaning given over to the devil, meaning to borrow a, a turn of phrase from, from a different uh, Marian apparition, you know, hell's uh, uh, souls falling into hell like snowflakes. I mean, this is remember, this is a ground a grounding moment. The second secret of Fatima, we know as a matter of fact, you know, the 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 Fatima seer sister Lucy dos Santos um, was talking about millions dying, whole nations being wiped off the map. Uh, you know, world war, one beginning, one ending, um, and and young. Lucy Dos Santos batted this, rattled this off without batting an eye. But then when it comes to the third secret, she would get essentially seizures when she'd sit down to write it. It took her 23 years to write it, even when her bishop gave her an order to do so. It was something so horrible, so much worse than world wars. So that's a not only a grounding moment, but it's a moment that enables us to, even though we can't quantify how bad it must be, we can sort of proportionalize. It must be awful. Entire continents, the continent of Christianity, uh, Europe, being almost entirely bespoiled, which is bad macroscopically, but microscopically it's even more horrible. It just means thousands upon thousands of souls going to hell. So I think that I think that's... That's what I thought when I, I I look at these words. What was that? What was that rumor or something I heard that John the twenty third when he read the third secret he fainted, or somebody like that? Yeah, the rumor that I heard is well, I mean, this rumor comes directly from Malachi Martin, is that he was outside the door, cooling his heels, when, if I I think I have this right. I think they all looked at it. All the most important curial officials were in there with John the Twenty Third when he looked at it, and and um, based Cardinal Ottaviani, who's um, you know in, in the '60s he was the equivalent of the CDF. He was a, a good, goodly conservative um, because uh, Malachi Martin's uh, maestro was Cardinal Bea, a modernist. Who was in there and got to read the secret and and they brought i guess malachi martin in shortly thereafter and, and told him what it was but yeah some people say that john the 23rd fainted others said he was um annoyed by it and said well this is never going to see the light of day even goodly cardinal ottaviani the cdf number two in the church said that this is this is so grave it'll never see the light of day this will never be published so um i think that comes directly from martin himself Hmm. So okay, so say so this, this. Well, we'll see. We'll see because we are uh, we left off at page two fifty seven, and the book concludes on page six forty six. So there's a little while longer to go, but that's but the, but where we end here 
I mean, there's a few more chapters after what we just talked about with that meeting in the EU. But we have, over those chapters, Mastroianni is informing the new Secretary of State how things are going to go, um, how, how, they, how they're going to be going with planning this, to sow continued disunity, and then also capitalize on that disunity to transform the papacy into nothing more than a collection of councils and commissions, and uh, so that, obviously, they are able to more easily, easily do what they will with the entire organization because as we have we talked about before they don't want to destroy it you're talking about inroads to it to easily hundreds of millions of devout people now even though you can get to close to a, a billion in in church membership uh years ago i don't know if it's still close to around there is it i, I mean it, it breaks down to what what counts you know a cultural catholic is probably three quarters of that uh, practicing serious-minded less than a quarter, I'd say. That's what I'm saying. It's just like, what does it matter at that point? But uh, but but they are achieving other goals where people are just becoming more uh, global-minded, which I don't I don't understand why that would be a a good thing going forward if you're going to make yourself more and more obsolete. So so it's I, I guess one trade-off to the other, but still. That's really what the rest of it is. Masriani's still doing his thing. He's setting up all these councils. And then we get a pretty awesome breakdown. I mean, this is incredible. We get an awesome breakdown on page... Where the hell is it? It was that Pensa Bene guy. Yeah, Pensa yes. Bene. He's talking about... He's talking about agents of change. I think it's 248. around... 248. 248? Yeah. Guys, yeah. I'll tell you. Yeah, yeah, that, that, I actually have that. Yeah, there you go. Agents, uh, change agents, two forty nine. Like that entire. There's like two full pages where he's he's talking about the kinds of people, organizations, institutions that must be committed to slow and gradual change. Where at the end of a timeline, you will have a country's people who will openly accept and celebrate ideas that were considered absolutely abhorrent maybe just a few short generations prior. And, I mean, we're seeing that right now with the, the fact that there is, is even anything to debate about abortion. Uh, we're seeing that right now three, four generations before it would be unthinkable. And, um, and of course, there would be a... That would be a lot more easily spread, especially by, by media. But institutions captured, it's an incredible thing that Malachi Martin uh, articulates through this character of Pensa Bene of how entire nations, cultures are hijacked very slowly, frog boiling in the pot, that kind of a thing. And then the entire thing ends with the murder, the murder of the Scalabrini guy. Father Scalabrini, he was desecrated on pages like 254, 256, 257, the last three pages of the last chapter that we, we, uh, we picked. He's found dead, he's castrated, his, uh, his uh, member is stuffed in his mouth, he's stabbed 47 times because he's 47 years old. It was completely ritualistic, and the cop that shows up to, to handle the, um, the body, the crime scene, is then made to retire and given a, some kind of a Catholic hero medal by who I am assuming, and I might be assuming wrong, we are supposed to suspect as the person behind the hit and that is one cardinal of center city his eminence the cardinal of center city 
Who is the Cardinal of Center City? This this is Leonardine, or in real life, Cardinal Bernadine of Chicago. And, and he is a confirmed Satanist in real life. We, we, we talked about him some last time. So but this makes sense he, then. He's both. He's um, Archbishop of the second most, sometimes considered the second most important American see. Chicago is the most important, second most important American see. And uh, he is a hated rival of goodly Archbishop Fulton Sheen. And definitely we know, we have confirmed his role in the satanic enthronement. That That's in real, apart from just this faction book so then this is this, so then this is this is huge then right here as far as putting together a piece because um as far as the death see i'm trying to i, I want to get around to what they said about uh about pedophilia where the hell was it um scalabrini a priest of archdiocese named sebastian scalabrini Assistant pastor of a nearby Holy Angels Parish, 47 years of age. Death occurred about midnight, found in a housekeeper about 8 in the morning. Multiple stab wounds inflicted with a very sharp instrument. Forefinger and thumb severed from each hand, but so far not found on the premises. Castration, genitals stuffed into mouth, no signs of struggle. Personal papers seem to be as father, uh, as father left them. Nothing of note, reputation as a quiet man, little contact with his neighbors, visited frequently by fellow clergymen. This is the police report. No one saw or heard anything unusual yesterday, evening or night. The doorman who was on duty says father had a guest who left shortly after midnight, didn't get a name. Now, um, death by misadventure. Oh, okay, here you go. They called it, they, they labeled it death by misadventure. The usual drill meant that the body would be cremated, and it meant that Wadgilla, who that is the, the inspector, the Wadgilla's known a report on the issue, and the autopsy filings would be sealed in the BOSI, the Bossies file, along with those of uh, similar cases over the past 11 years. While he waited for the Bossy boys to arrive, Wadgilla made one last check for the apartment. He wouldn't have another chance, and he leafed again through the precinct file on Father, member of the Saturn Group 7 for 27 years. Pedophiliac activities confirmed to group rituals. Two and a half years as a police informant. Advised one week ago by his bossy contract that his cover might have been blown. So, so then I guess, is so that this Scalabrini was probably part of the enthronement then. I'm guessing so. Yeah. I, because that's just this is what it comes down to here. It says um, he even says it from the the crowning touch. The Inspector Wadgilla's abrupt retirement came in the form of a letter awarding him the Catholic Hero Medal for that year. The letter, which cited Inspector Sylvester Wadgilla's unstinting loyalty to Holy Mother Church in the performance of his civic duties, was signed by His Eminence, the Cardinal of Center City. As we know. From the, from the opening, from the prologue, Holy Mother Church was the American satellite satellite church for the enthronement, that they had one going on in Rome at the Vatican. They had a satellite church doing the exact same rituals here in the United States. So, obviously, this Scalabrini guy had to have been a part of that, or was he a double agent that, that got found, or whatever the hell. But this is that center city cardinal. That is now tying up loose ends. That's it. Very, very interesting. Yeah. Do we, we we haven't we haven't heard from 
Leonardine, right? Cardinal Bernardin or Cardinal Leonardine in the live action of the story yet? I don't. I I, I don't think so. Maybe you know what? There's a there's a good chance that it could have, and there's just so many names that I have forgotten. It's a lot of names. Yeah, I don't think we have. He came uh, at the end of last week's reading, the beginning of this week's. He was mentioned more like he is alive in the time of the action. And they're like going to give something to him. I'm, I'm forgetting exactly what it was. I was like, ooh, that's Bernadine. I, I know a lot about Bernadine. So some of these guys, like the incoming Cardinal Secretary of State, uh, I forget what his fake name is, is Cardinal Sedano. Again, one of the two... Um, I don't want to say coverers of one of the two guys that really stood down the third secret of Fatima when it was Cardinal Bertone and Cardinal Sedano. He's the incoming guy that's going to replace uh, Maestroani. Uh, I, I'm forgetting what his fictitious name is. So uh, I'm it, more interested yeah. in the Cardinals who I, I, I know who they are. And uh, I don't think Bernadine or Leonardine has been uh, in the action yet. Um, Oratini is Silvestrini. I know a lot about that guy too. And that's, that's very interesting stuff. I was doing a news search, a hard target search for what, where this uh, murder of the priest occurred in reality. Um, and I, I, I've narrowed it down to a few few places I think it might be. But these are all real actions, remember. Yeah. Oh, and you know the, the crazy thing about this is too, Tim, I, I get these things, well, it's time to get into our thread here, but I had this sent to me once. Um, you and I have talked about Gabriel Amorth before and this was a story from years ago where the hell is it uh let me see if i can screen capture let's see vatican okay um so here is an article from 2010 that we discussed once, and I had it on the show before, too. 2010, Pope's exorcist says the devil is in the Vatican. Reverend Amorth, uh, chief exorcist in the Vatican, says he treated 70,000 cases. Inside his small third-floor office of the Vatican City, Reverend Gabriel Amorth prepares for his next client in the corner. Is a bed with a restraining ropes on the wall, pictures of the Virgin Mary. Near the armchair, there's a Bible and other copies of prayers. Looking his 85 years, the priest is still dressed in his pajamas, but his face shows signs of energy that has helped sustain him. And uh, he goes on to talk about he's treated over 70,000 cases of demonic possession and that it, the, the devil is uh, is in the Vatican. We know, we've known many people have made that claim there too, but I was told once, and I have this comment attached to my notes here for whenever I needed it. Was it uh, somebody named Wrong Dimension had written to me uh, last October and said, "Hey Frank, so my aunt has been a Catholic nun since she was 18. She's now 68. She pre she's a pretty cool though and doesn't push anything on anyone. I ran a school in Peru for many years. Years ago, all of the let's see here. Years ago, when all of the pedophilia shit really started coming out, I asked her about the Vatican." And uh, as I had also just finished reading the historical book about all the kids that used to be taken in at the Vatican, which happened for hundreds of years, she said she believed all of it and said that she said that the cardinals and bishops are murdered by the order within the Vatican regularly. I was shocked, but also not shocked. She said that they have so much power that they do it easily. 
Now, obviously, this is a this is a word from a, a member of my audience who's bringing anecdotal information from his Catholic nun aunt that we just have to trust their word. But still, um, that's uh, I mean, reading this book, I, I wouldn't have any reason to, to not trust her on that. The, the way that right now we're learning about uh, Calabrini or, or what's his name? Scalabrini. Scalabrini being uh, disposed of in the in the in the u.s i have to imagine especially in third world countries and and elsewhere it'd uh, be even easier but that's just something that came up for me along the way yeah this is real there's there are real stories from the american midwest that have surfaced over the last four years that are allegedly from this book there was uh, ritual killings done in a small town in wisconsin that people i remember in spring of 2019 people were saying uh it was a a story that had resurfaced from the 60s they were saying this is that act of enthronement um uh from from windswept house and again this was a big book so lots of people knew about this is not just uh practicing catholics or something so when that story broke i was like that's when i first started saying I, i need to read i need to read this book Look, it's it's real. I mean, the the, the infiltration is real, and yeah, there, there's nothing there's nothing offensive to saying. I mean, the way you and I became friends was you wanted to talk to people after the summer of shame, and then it came out that Francis had likely known about Uncle Ted McCarrick, the molester, and his activities, and taken him out of a life of prayer and penance that Benedict XVI had put him into, took him out and and put him right back into full action again. Um, that was the summer of shame in 2018, and that's when we became friends. And it's like, where was he? What what holy see did he direct? Washington D.C. Does that sound a little bit Pizzagate? Yeah. You know, that's that's the G.U.T. the Grand Unifying Theory that I'm after is Cardinal Theo McCarrick, bad guy in the church. He's considered the best fundraiser in the world. He's not in this story, but a lot of his friends are. And um, he's in D.C., you know, was he hanging out with the, the Clintons and the Podestas and the, the Pizzagate folks? That's I'm always got eyes out and antennae out for, the, for that connection. See, this and this is another when I whenever I bring on guests that, that come on to talk about the. The way that the world is and, and, you know, we talk about full spectrum dominance. That's not just air, land, sea, cyberspace. It's also the ethereal realm it's also the spiritual realm and i and i love posing to certain uh, certain uh guests who I, I know it would be appropriate that in their estimation what do they think is the greatest motivating factors for people who are in these these uh upper rungs on on the ladder doing these things and actually have the the influence to dictate what nations do and their militaries do and everything else so how much of it is just pure megalomania a a secularist megalomania uh and and uh, or maybe just atheistic in that respect where hey you know what i there's there's nothing after this i'm just going to loot it all and and whatever and nothing can stop me and i i am the closest thing to god and then what is how much of that is actually people who are trying in earnest to commune with darker powers that are actually trying to commune with with uh, with entities, non-human entities, and I think we're seeing here once again a mix of of both. I think that there is an a uh, I think there's an atheistic um, 
there's an element of atheistic naivete that thinks that everybody who's concerning about the uh, who, who gets to dominate the spiritual uh, realm or, or at least be one with that is, is, is stupid and wasting their time because there's money to be made and, and countries to be gobbled up. But on the other end, I mean, there is, there are people, there's, there's no reason to do an enthronement, what we read in the beginning, and we know that rituals like that are going on all the time. If you want to steal a, uh, a, 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 a truck that is full of mink coats, and enrich yourself, you just go out and do it. You don't sacrifice a squirrel or a baby before you do it and then try to invoke the devil. You just go out and buy the coats. So, you know, what is the point of, of do, going through all that ritual if there is not a real, real desire to connect with a non-human entity and go beyond just what you think greedy people want, which is just money and power? There's something else. Did you ever see that video? I saw it last summer. I can't remember if we talked about this or not. By the winner of the, like, Australia's Got Talent guy. What's that guy's name? I, I don't know if you're an audience. I know. I forget his name, but I know. I know. he's He did that big, long thing about the Freemasons, right? It was, like, five hours long, and I was watching it from, like, 11 p.m. That my, my wife, Steph's asleep next to me, and it went to, like, 4. I'm like... But yeah, you saw that. Yeah. You remember, remember what he said? He would cut back in like once every forty-five minutes. Then it would be like forty-five minutes of pictures of people doing all the Freemason, you know, gang signs and shit. And here's the thing, man. Here's what he said that really struck a chord. These people, the that you know, Washington D.C. and Hollywood, basically the two centers of American power, West and West and East. They sit around and they're all part of the same uh, Illuminati cliques. I'm a big basketball fan. Even even you look at the the um, what's the opposite of progression? The devolution of Kevin Durant, who's was once a nice Christian boy, great for a time, the greatest player in the NBA in this era. He would always thank his Lord and Savior Jesus and Christ after games, and then he got into and then he he um, took on. Jay-Z as his firm, who's a, a major agent for NBA players, took him on, no longer talks about Jesus. I noted it because I was a big Thunder fan at the time. Stopped talking about Jesus. I think it was between the 2013 and 2014 season. And now he has weird Luciferian uh, tweets where he's calling himself a god. This happened a week ago. And and I said, he looks, he looks gaunt. He looks pale. People do real deals uh, with the devil, I, and I didn't believe this stuff before five or six years ago. It had nothing to do with my reversion to the faith. I didn't believe that it, there was such a direct communication. But whatever that guy's name is, I'm going to remember his name, the Australian Scott Talent guy, he goes, look, it's a chessboard, man. The, the queen and the king and all of the powerful court of the queen and the king, they know. They sit around and they laugh at atheists. They have Not only do they do attempts to, as Hillary's campaign aide said, sacrifice a chicken in the backyard to Moloch. They're not joking. They don't attempt to contact the preternatural agency, the Luciferian agency. They have success. And this is a tale as old as time. Uh, Dr. Faust, right? This, this Mozart is writing uh, about this. Uh, Goethe writing about this. Both of them were Freemasons, and they're saying, basically, you want extra knowledge, you want extra power, do this darkling deal and it's it's hey 
your your fate is already sealed, like it said in last week's reading. But you get real heightened power, worldly power, while you're here. Here, that's why people do this stuff. That's why the Podestas are in. That's why Washington D.C. and Hollywood are swallowed up by sex magic rituals and stuff. I didn't believe a word of this before five or six years ago, and it's it's it just seems that it's all real. So then I then it's 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 perfect. Uh, it's a perfect kind of. It's a it's a really uh, perfect setup that they have for this machine because, and I guess we have discussed this in in many ways of what communism actually is, the the ideological aspect of it all. It's really just a red herring, because communism is it, it never been it, it is a power control. It's capitalism if your main product is buying and selling and managing people. So I mean, there's always somebody living like the the greatest of capitalists at the top of a communist system. It's everybody else's just has to die because it's feudalism. But the thing here is, that's just it. At the top of the communist, the communist food chain, there is a just an evil cap- capitalist sitting there. Yeah. You know, uh, an evil, the the most evil type of capitalist is sitting there at the top of of, of the communist food chain, while everybody below has been told that the uh, you know the laws of supply and demand all that other stuff that capitalism that the free market that freedom that independence that uh, that going out into a free market and engaging as a free individual is um, is a, is a trap it is a hoax it is something that only the greedy want so they sterilize people they sterilize they completely hollow them out and they prepare a place that is so impressionable where they have no beliefs, whereas the people at the top, they understand how the market works. They understand supply and demand. They understand how, how the free market is the best thing that fits with, our, with our, uh, our makeup as a species. It's not perfect, but neither are we. It, but it's the best stabilizer we have. You, you can't, uh, but, but that translates into spiritual now. There are people that we don't really see that have been invested in this in a long time. Every once in a while, we get to learn a new face, like a Klaus Schwab or something like that, who um, who train, uh, who, who invest in a system that creates hundreds of millions of people who who think that it's old-fashioned and weird to be religious or to believe in God and to just say, "Oh, I'm just spiritual. I'm not religious. I and if it feels good, do it and and live and let live." And 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 those are the people that really have surrendered all of their power at that point and especially all of the power that they had to defend themselves from what is a ravenous group of people who who know that there is something there is something to be plugged into and it's always just about taking down our defenses before they they come in and rake us up and and that is that's what we're seeing getting set up here now in this book it's just it's uh it's dastardly yeah yeah well said. Well, hey, let's get let's get to this thread here. Uh, Mike Rogan says, "I'm struck by the character of the holy priest who escaped arson and com- and communism. He's said to be able to minister all the good mocker, uh, uh, minister to all types of people while remaining stable in his core. After recovering alcoholic, sponsoring some guys, I sometimes find that challenging. Meeting people where they are doesn't have to mean becoming like them." Hmm. Um. Sharon says, beginning on page 248, the meeting between Messeriani and Cardinal Silvio Orientini and Cardinal Leo Pens- uh, Pensabene, 
The words and explanation of how change agents, there you go, could be used to facilitate the goal of forcing the change in mindset of the bishops of the world and then all Roman Catholics, much like a pyramid scheme, which of course draws parallels to what is occurring in the world today. The same playbook, different characters. I worry for Paul and Christian and the decisions they will have to make. Will they be strong enough? Though I fear that Paul has gotten into something that he will not be able to get out of and he will lose everything. The reading from week three has given me an understanding of the changes I saw growing up and going to Catholic school and in the church in the 60s and 70s. It has also shown us all readers the cruelty of how secrets are kept and swept under the rug. Mm. Let's see here. Uh, Garden... Garden Gardenia B says every part of chapter 24 I loved the reading about Paul Gladstone and his family living in the beautiful O'Connor Castle in County Kerry, Ireland. I didn't want him to ever leave that beautiful place in page 236-237. I felt the pressure of being put under put upon Paul Gladstone as Benthock stress the loyalty the American must have for the American firm while yet serving to the EC commissioners and council of ministers. This was followed by an appeal to elitism. Quote, once you leave the valley and walk upon the mountaintop, you will have a view of the valley dwellers that is very different than theirs. End quote. Other notes, words that impacted me, common mind of bishops, agents of change, facilitators, uh, and of course with the purpose to achieve a desired conformity. And on page 268, 277, Paul Gladstone visits Jerusalem. Did we get to that? No, we didn't get to there. They skipped. They went ahead. It went. That's 10 pages they, ahead of where they, we they, Okay, so they probably read, um, Garden probably read chapter, the whole chapter. So I said chapter 20 to 26. They probably just read all of chapter 26, which I was, I was it doesn't matter. You'll just be able to, you got there. So I don't, I'm not reading this one. Uh, but thank you so much for that. So desired conformity, they're seeing a lot of the things that we are seeing. The pressure being put on him, yeah, uh, that, those scenes in Ireland, I had a special tug of my heart, uh, especially when his son kept on saying Decky or Decky, repeating his name over and over again, Declan, and how he was just absorbing the sound of his son's voice and everything around. In that simplicity, that was really his most... He was a family man. He loves his family. And I take... I have those moments every day, not on a beautiful... Uh, on a beautiful coastline of, of Scotland or Ireland out there, but just in my apartment living room with my daughter. That's, that stuff is is so precious and you can tell he's really living in those moments with his family though he has been knocked off course with his faith and man it's almost like one, I almost wanted to, to jump into the book and tell him dude just give it all up yeah, you, yeah. You, you, yeah. you can work on the faith thing later uh, if, if that is but right now don't take the job just give it all up yeah you know yeah. so that's where I was at with that yeah it's beautiful I mean what is not insinuated if we're reading between the lines is um, where, you know, Ceci is getting the, the house all ready at the beginning of this reading. She's getting the house all ready. She's excited for both sons to come home. Uh, of course, Paul, Paul won't make it. And she's, you don't sense that there's been much explicitly expressed conflict where she's like how, how did you lose the faith such a faithful woman um with both of her sons whom she loves so dearly 
it, you would expect some some more conflict there and it, it from from what we've seen so far it hasn't happened so you wonder how the rest of the uh gladstone gladstone tribe has uh has responded to paul they they all still seem to be close right as a family that's that's what i keep trying to discern as yeah. i read through this more and more is like what what's the status of the uh, the family of origin gladstone right right yeah. and i and i think her willingness to let all of her you know to, to just deal with the deal with the upset being upset that paul was not showing up did not really fight too hard and then dealing with not only losing christian to rome but also father goodmacher who was well, God, they they describe him as a literal godsend because where were they going to have they, we we get all the the history of them joining um, the society of Pius X uh, in this here too. There's a lot of good backstory in those opening chapters about the Gladstones, but it, it's really it was one of those moments where like Ceci is just accepting the path. I mean, obviously this is she'd rather have everybody shacked up at home in the in the the safety and the sanctity of windswept house and just tending to themselves but there is a large there's a large amount of souls on the line here and if this is what people are if this is your duty then i guess you just have to find a a place to accept it at some point and live through it and i have another one over here from appropriate mess says the scene where Paul's son Declan tells Paul that he saw a green frog I think and it looked at him uh, I think it was a fish I think it was a fish that looked at him Paul is reminded of an old Irish tradition about the type of experience foreshadowing death yeah if a fish looks at you you're, uh, you're going to die or something like that this is while Paul and his wife are awaiting word for the new position something stirs in him that inner voice perhaps giving him pause he isn't able to really shake it Though and uh, though and when he receives word that he has been voted in, he dives right in, forgetting the incident with Declan. I think Paul so far is a good person who just wants a good life for his family. He is immediately enticed, however, with his new job, the trip to Israel, becoming a Mason, etc. I think, damn, I think that, that they went a little bit ahead. I can't wait to read this next chapter now. I agree that he may have gotten himself into something he won't be able to get get out of. I hope the Catholic faith. He has allowed to lapse will come into play when things start going south. I look forward to his eventual meeting with his brother. Thanks, Frank, for pulling this together. I'm really enjoying it. Hello to Tim as well. Yeah, I, I'm. so this is great. People are seeing, and this is why I love that we're doing this, because, you know, so many times along the way of reading a book alone, you can ask yourself, I really hope I'm understanding this. And I think that, we're doing this as a group it's great to focus and every time we we jump in we know exactly what's going on and what's being led to and and uh and this is good a lot of affirmation here um you're doing a great job leading it too frank your uh, discussion points are very very clarifying well this i i'm, I'm so happy that i have you to bounce off of uh, bounce off of this this really has been so serendipitous the the pick the timing uh, not not only just the timing of uh, all these ideas popping up and whatever, but the timing of us getting down into these chapters and the timing of what we're living through in the world outside of this book that was published 30 years ago. It's um, it really is just a lot of serendipity in this whole experience. So I'm I'm happy we're doing it like this. Here is uh, the last one I have. 
is it's all just says, number one, I have a question related to page 167. It mentions 10 men representing transnational corporations controlling communications, electronics, oil, agriculture, banking, insurance, and reinsurance. To what organization is he referring to? NAFTA, Agenda 21. I'm not well versed on these things. It's interesting, uh, interesting you're hearing you, what you're doing. Uh, well, uh, th- that would have to be that Council of Ten that Apple Yard is, you know, uh, plugged into. And obviously he's a guy with a lot of occult uh, interests and things like that. But you can just as easily make this a, unless, of course, Malachi Martin specifically says what this... Um, this 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 ten committee of ten is all about. It could just be Bilderberg as well. I mean, insurance reinsurance. You should see the the people who show up to the. When I told my mother years ago, when she she retired, but she retired working for a major reinsurance company, and in over the over the thirty or close to thirty years she worked there. They uh, and uh, and and without a college degree too, you just came in entry level administrative work, things like that, and it was able to do. That. That's when you can actually build a career without a college degree. But anyway, this particular company changed hands a couple of times in in the time that she was there. Reinsurance companies, and finally, uh, what she ended up retiring with was this company that I saw. And I I told her I said when I started paying attention to who the invitees for the Bilderberg meetings were, I said, Hey Ma, look at that. She goes, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I heard that we, they, they go to that, those meetings and stuff. And I said, you know what those meetings do? I said, it's like, this is the, this is part of the, um, the, the, the world government that nobody elected. So it could just as easily be a reference to any kind of, um, gaggle of international interests. Because it's not just Bilderberg, it's not just the G7, G8, it's not just Davos. Uh, I mean, it's just, it's the same people, but it's 10,000 reasons. Like those Strasbourg Summit that they are, that they are, all the cardinals went to earlier on in the book. That stuff happens all the time. As far as these particular 10, though, Appleyard calls them the, the Committee of 10, no? Yes. So. Yeah. And it's in, the year is curious too, ninety two, ninety three. I keep thinking of um, in that uh, documentary I'm in, um, the Greatest Reset. They talk. Uh, what, what's the lady's name? She just passed away last year, um, late last year. Uh, the lady, lady. Uh, oh, I know her name. Wow, you would know her name too. She she just died. But she said she's the one that in one of the trailers for the movie she says like there's this meeting it's like a Bilderberg type meeting in 90, 92, 93, representing 164 nations that they're gonna they're gonna cut basically a proto agenda 2030. I get I get that they've had a lot of proto agenda 2030s, but dividing up all equitable all assets equitably, all land, all air, all, all minerals, all people, all animals, and they're gonna try to accomplish this within decades. I mean that. That is what there are many names for it. There are many faces, and the same group seem to have meetings with slightly different personnel. But it's all the same stuff, mm. I think. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. And but you'd also never know. Um, it's all just because we we may learn a little bit more specifically about it as time goes on. But um, at, at this point, I would just say chalk it up to being a shadowy globalist organization of people that uh, should not be too unfamiliar to you. 
let's see. Let's see here. Pages 207 to 11, he continues. That what we have suspected up to this point is actually starting to be revealed. Christian indicates that Mastroianni is no friend of the Pope and it devours a dozen men like me for breakfast every day. He recalls Father Aldo saying this is a global warfare, uh, warfare of spirit. Sessi tells him what Rome needs is a good shaking up. Christian decides it was good to, it was to, it was to, be, to go to Rome then. And is quoting go, uh, Joseph Conrad, the only real exile is a man who cannot go home again. This immediately made me think about the man, the men who fought for our freedoms here in America. There was no option. It was to decide to fight or there would be no home to return to. No quarter given. Game on. I'm loving the book club, Frank. Can't wait to meet each week to hear you and Tim's thoughts and comments. Thank you. It's all just. That's fantastic. And what, uh, one last thing here from Nutmeg Rosie says, Paul Gladstone's experience in seminary illustrates the sad state of Catholic Church today. Page 195, uh, quote, minds and wills bend on liquidating the traditional organization of the church, end quote, leading Paul to leaving the ministry. Page 197, quote, I would rather be a decent Catholic layman cooperating with the church than a ragtag member of this tasteless, irreligious pigsty. Based. <laughs> and it, it, that is pretty based, you know. But unfortunately, unfortunately, he uh, you would you would imagine that even though Sessi and Christian would have that kind of disgust in in their stomach for observing this inside of a a, a seminary, no less a ministry, no less, they wouldn't have let it broken their faith. It, I, I think it was so demoralizing to him. That's what I'm saying, Paul. He might be the most interesting character for me right now, only because you you just don't know what his character arc is. If there's going to be a redemption story in his, even though I don't know if there's too much to be redeemed on right now, it doesn't seem like he is a man who is knowingly engaging in criminal activity. He just has his globalist outlooks on the world that the world would be a better place if we were a little bit more unified. That might be uh, that might be, I don't know, a bad or some kind of a uh, ill-thought-out theo- uh, 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 philosophy there. But is he a known criminal? Does he whatever? So I would like to see if there's going to be some kind of a spiritual redemption arc for him because it's, I don't know, that's, that's, really, that's really interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, when you read the great, the great one, Dostoevsky, when you read Brothers Karamazov, which is not a bad idea to do a reading group sometime in the future. I mean, who's who's the most interesting character? Goodly based saint saintly Alyosha, you know, the youngest brother who who's basically becomes an Eastern Orthodox priest. Or and I love Alyosha, but or or the middle brother, Ivan, who you don't you don't know where he's gonna go yet. You know, he's a little bit uh PG thirteen now. Mm. It we, we know how, how Ivan Karamasov turns out, but there, there's the, the conflict within the soul of the character is what makes them interesting. Just from uh, doesn't have to be a religious novel. Just from from what we know about characterization and imagery and and plot. So oh, that, that that is what's making Paul the uh, at this point. I think both brothers are really interesting. I think the interactions between them is going to be interesting. But yeah, Paul Paul is a, a complex character. I, I hope I hope that's. Uh, let me just say this. Malachi Martin seems to be a hell of a writer. I did not know he was such a good writer all these low these many years that I've known oh, I should read this book. 
I didn't know he'd be so good at characterization and imagery and, and diction, just the basic sort of building blocks of what goes into an actually masterful novel. Yeah. He's no, got it, it here. It, it's, yeah. it's, been, it's been wonderful, really has. And I think that's what, what you're saying there is, is, a, is what we're waiting to see now in the next, the next bit of pages. Where I, th- I would say that we should do where we are right now, so 257. So it's the beginning of, pay, of chapter 26. Let's go to chapter 30. So I, so I think chapter 30 is on page 321. So it's not, uh, it's probably about 65, 70 pages or something like that, but uh, not, it's not too little. So chapter 30 is on page 321 if you have the paperback. Let's do that for next week. And that is where I think that the tension is starting to build for me too there, Tim. Not only do you want to see some, some characters, they have, they, they, there's no arc. They are what they are. They are pillars in their own shoes they have pledged themselves to one power or another and it's just going to be interesting to see people like paul gladstone where is he going to regain his independence along the way because as we're seeing nobody is above reproach within this this circle this cabal nobody is beyond execution so I don't know. If if they're going to play by their own rules, they have to do it very subtly, and they have to outwit the greatest snakes that mankind has ever produced, it seems. So that's all I have over here. Tim, you have anything to, to wrap up with? Parting shot. Everyone Google, including you, Frank, Google, if you haven't already, Francis E. Pellegrini uh, with two L's. As I joked last week, the characterization key for old Malachi Martin is not wrought of subtlety. That is Father Sebastian Scalabrini is Francis E. Pellegrini murdered on May the 30th, 1984. You can go find some stories on it in the process of exposing a satanic cult in Chicago, which is where Cardinal Bernadine or Cardinal Leonardine. So uh, Scalabrini, that's his real, he used his real name. Uh, Pellegrini is his real name. I, I, I told you I, last week, if you go to that character key I sent you, Frank, I laugh whenever I look at this thing because the characters, he barely changed their names. And uh, as a kind of corollary to this parting shot, uh, everyone look at the way that Malachi Martin died. Many think it was not an accident. We, You know what? At the end of this book, we got we to gotta spend time on that. Because yeah. I never talked about his death, and I can I can I can find some newspapers from that from that time. It was like ninety nine two thousand. I don't think he made it to the millennium. Yes, no, it was right right before right right after he did all those Art Bell interviews. I think you've listened to all of them. Ninety eight, ninety nine. Right after he finished this book, you know, uh, hello. <laughs> he yeah. with with names like uh, Pellegrini for Scalabrini and uh, Leonardine for Bernadine and. Uh, Oratini for Silvestrini, uh, Silvio Oratini for for uh, for Achille Silvestrini. That he's not being subtle here. If it's faction, which seems to be quite close to fact, closer to fact than fiction, uh, the guy was playing with with fire, and it looks like many many people have believed that his death was no accident, was foul play, and you see why. The character key alone tells you. But look up that 1984. May 30th death. So then this makes sense then, because if Scalabrini, in the book, that is dead now, that was, that was found with his genitals in his mouth, 47 years old, with 47 stab wounds in him, very ritualistically killed, 
and inside of his dossier that the police pick up, he is bearing the the accusations of pedophilia. So they are accusing him of what he was about to, what he was working to expose. Then, because we we read that it, it was in his file that they they says pedophilia. Of uh, where the so that has to be. Where is it? Um, here we go. While he waited for the Bolsey boys to arrive, Wagdilla, the inspector there, made one last check of the apartment. He wouldn't have another chance, and he leafed again through the precinct file on, fa- on the father, Scalabrini, member of the Saturn Group 7 for 20... I have to imagine that's a satanic group. I mean, Saturn, uh, Saturn and, uh, you know, Satan... There, there's, there's, there's a few cults that have to do with Saturn worship. Um, member of the Saturn Group 7 for 20 years, pedophiliac activities confined to group rituals. Two and a half years as a police informant advised one week ago by the Bossy contract that his cover might have been blown. So pedophiliac activities confined to group. So are they saying that, that Father Scalabrini, he was involved in these, that he was, a, he was a, or, or was all of this stuff... Was he just, did he bear witness to it all as a spy and never really took place in it? I don't know. So it looks like he's either being smeared by the people who killed him to make sure that anything he might have been uh, going forward will be discredited by his, his, uh, his record, or I don't know. I don't, I, I can't imagine how it could be anything other than that right now. Yeah. Agreed. Okay. Agreed. All right. It's a so, real story, though, and and the guy's name is Pellegrini. And yeah, it's one of the two. It's either a smear thing, accuse him of what they're accusing you of, the devil's favorite trick. You know, he's the ultimate gaslighter. So are the agents of the devil. I, I've seen this in other other church pedophilia stories. I, I sent you one of them uh, right now, behind the scenes, a more recent one. Or yeah, he was he was part of the group. Most police informants are dirty. They're just less dirty than the people they're informing on. But I, I would guess the former if I had to. Well, this is going to be a really, really great uh, installment next week. I can't wait. We are going from Chapter 26 to Chapter... If you if you uh, didn't skip, skip ahead, you can reread it again. It's up to you. But we are going now to proceed to page 321 in the paperback. It is beginning, the beginning. So stop when you see Chapter 30. You don't have to actually read all of Chapter 30. Then again, you can finish the whole book if you want. And just show up for the segmented conversations. You don't have to, you don't have to uh, delay gratification for us. But thank you again, Tim. It's been wonderful to hang out with you and send my best to the wife and uh, enjoy Mother's Day, all of you over there. You too, brother. All right, guys. Ladies and gentlemen, enjoy your weekend. Happy Mother's Day. Get some sleep. Thanks again, Tim. You're the best. You too, man. Peace. All right. Later. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you. I'll talk to you soon. I don't know. Maybe I'll go live from a fire pit if it's not raining sometime this weekend. If not, I will see you on Monday night, 7 o'clock. Thank you for everything.